1: What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's a warm summer day on July 14, 1990, in Stowe, Scotland. The day is like any other in the small town, and a six-year-old girl is walking to her friend's house along the road. But the day was about to take a sinister turn. A
2: local man was working his garden and saw a van draw up and saw the wee girl's legs walking under as if she was walking past the van and suddenly disappear.
1: The man dialed 999 and police rushed to the scene. By chance, they were able to locate the vehicle, forcing the driver to pull over. When they opened the back of the van, they made a shocking discovery.
3: That child is trussed up She has a plaster across her mouth. She's got a bag over her head. She's minutes away from suffocating.
1: Unbeknownst to the police, the driver was a 43-year-old pedophile, and he was responsible for the abduction and murder of several other young girls. Police had been trying to track him down for years.
4: This is a man for whom the word depravity could almost be precisely applied. They were
3: terrible crimes. He probably killed more children than any other convicted child sex serial killer in Britain.
1: This is What Makes a Killer, a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Notoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Robert Black. Robert Black was born on April 21, 1947, in Grangemouth, a town about 20 miles from Edinburgh, Scotland. At the time of his birth, Black's mother was an unmarried woman, and in an attempt to avoid scrutiny, she gave him up. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley speaks more on this decision.
5: Robert Black's mother was unmarried at the time. There was a real stigma around illegitimacy. So he was given up. Now, his mother went on to get married and to have four other children, but she never, ever wanted anything to do with Robert Black. So right from the outset, this is is somebody who's facing rejection and exclusion. He's somebody who has come into the world
1: with a stigma on him. For a period during his childhood, Black was fostered by Jack and Margaret Tulip. The couple lived in a remote Western Scottish village. Journalist Tim Tate says the time Black spent with the couple was not enjoyable.
3: They were in their mid fifties. They had no previous experience. They were strict, they were God fearing and he's never given a name. He's always Robert Black, something that would have marked him out at the time in that small community.
1: Black later alleged that his foster parents were abusive. The foster father died when he was
5: five, but the foster mother uh, continued the abusive behavior that had been perpetrated beforehand. So he was beaten when he wet the bed. Here is somebody who does not have a a safe or a secure home environment. This is a, a young boy who has got no comfort from anybody whatsoever.
1: Retaliating against his cruel upbringing, Black became rebellious. It was also around this time that he developed an unhealthy interest in other children.
3: By the age of eight, he started offending. He's already developed sexualized behavior. He's taking the time and the trouble to peer up little girls' skirts. He has molested, that's putting it gently, a baby. And he's begun to explore bodily orifices. This is the obsession that will be with him all his life. In
1: 1958... Black's foster mother died, and he was sent to a children's home near Falkirk. There, his fascination with sex continued to grow. He and a small group of boys in the house tried to rape a 12-year-old girl. Journalist Jeffrey Wansel and forensic psychologist Rex Bieber believe this was a tipping point for Black.
4: I think that act, if you like, was the
6: genesis of blacks pedophilia at some point almost every pedophile who's attracted to a very young girl was placed in a sexual situation when when the pedophile himself was immature and did not understand what was going on or what the feelings were and all kinds of strange kinds of almost morbid curiosities are are aroused
1: as a result of the assault Black was removed from the children's home and sent to an all-boys residential home in Musselburgh.
3: He's 12. He's isolated. He's lonely. He's been physically abused. He's now in this highly regimented, severe, strict disciplinarian regime.
1: The move brought forth new issues for Black. There
5: was a member of staff who had been abusing one of the boys at this children's home. And when that boy reached the age of 16, he left the home. But before that, he was asked to find a replacement, and he essentially recommended Black as the next abuse victim for this staff member.
3: Did this contribute to Black's own offending behavior? Probably. Was it the cause of it? Probably not. Black had already embarked down that road. He was already on the path of being a serial sexual abuser.
1: The abuse by the staff member continued until Black left the home when he was 15. He moved to Greenock, a town just outside Glasgow. He rented a room in a boy's home and found work as a delivery boy. In 1963, a 16-year-old Black approached a 7-year-old girl. He said he had a box of kittens to show her and lured her into an abandoned air raid shelter.
4: He choked her until she became unconscious and he molested her. He left her for dead. She was later found wandering on her own in tears.
1: The girl was able to identify her attacker and Black was arrested for the first time.
5: This is a really, really significant point in the development of Robert Black's offending. This was an opportunity to intervene. This was a chance to actually stop that behavior spiraling, or at least put him in a place where he couldn't hurt people.
4: Although Black was convicted of attacking the girl, he was only found guilty of lewd and libidinous behavior by the Scottish courts, and was not, as he should have been to my mind, incarcerated.
3: At the time, there was just no understanding of paedophilia or what drives men to sexually abuse and to
4: kill children.
1: Black was released, and his depraved sexual desires toward young girls continued to escalate.
4: I think he developed an appetite for it. I think he thought he could get away with it after the experience in the Air Red shelter. I think he felt emboldened by the fact that no one had actually stopped him. In
1: 1966, Black returned to the town where he lived with his foster parents. He took up residence with the couple and their six-year-old daughter. One evening, Black was left to babysit the girl. The 19-year-old took this opportunity to violate her.
6: The one thing, though, that many people have speculated about is that, uh, Pedophiles are very immature, not really capable uh, for the most part of adult sexual relationships. And so they need to explore their sexual fantasies and their sexual curiosity with somebody who's weak, who will surrender to them because no adult would.
1: After the assault, Black was sent to a youth detention center for a year. After time served, he moved to London in 1968 and rented a room above a pub in Stamford Hill.
4: While he was living in Stanford Hill, he got a part-time job as a lifeguard, which allowed him to indulge his appetite for taking photographs of young girls in their bathing costumes. In those
3: days, it was called child pornography. It isn't pornography. It is the recording of the sexual assault on a child. That's what he was consuming, images of very, very young children being seriously, grossly sexually abused. In
1: 1976, Black found work as a van driver, delivering posters around the UK and Europe. The delivery van gave him the perfect cover to travel around looking for new victims.
5: Here's somebody who hasn't really got fantastic social skills, spending long periods of time unsupervised. But these are also periods of time in which he is fantasizing, in which he is ruminating, in which he is planning. So so this is somebody who is a very dangerous offender in the making.
3: It gives him the time and the ability to seek out potential new victims. He would spend the time driving round and round, looking for an opportunity and a suitable victim.
1: On August 12th, 1981, 34-year-old Robert Black seized an opportunity. He had taken a delivery job in Volundary, a small town in Northern Ireland. There, nine-year-old Jennifer Cardy was enjoying the school holidays with her mother and sister. Jennifer's mother, Pat Cardy, remembers that day. It was just myself
7: and uh, little baby Victoria, and Jennifer was to go to her friend's house on her new bicycle, and as Jennifer went out, she was laughing, joking, bye-bye and whatever. And uh, I'll never forget how she closed the door behind her and how her blonde hair just, you know, came round her face. As she closed the door and said bye-bye,
1: that was the last I ever saw her. As Jennifer set off to her friend's house, Robert Black was prowling the streets.
7: She was going uh, about a mile down the road to her friend's house this particular day. 12th of August would be her last time because she was to go to a children's camp and they were so looking forward to it.
1: Police would later speculate that Jennifer had briefly stopped to put on a cardigan. In that short period, Black came upon her and managed to get her inside of his van. He drove off, unseen by any witnesses. Later that afternoon, Jennifer's mother was becoming increasingly concerned over her daughter's whereabouts.
7: I expected her to be home, and she was always very punctual and... uh... At 20 past four, I thought I heard her bicycle being tinkled on the back wall. You know, the chain on the bike? I thought, oh, there's Jennifer back, but it wasn't. I never heard the little steps
1: run up the kitchen into the living room. In the evening, Jennifer's father, Andy Cardi came home from work to his anxious wife.
8: Pat's standing at the back door, uh, looking so worried. And when I asked her why she was so worried, she told me that Jennifer hadn't come home. And this wasn't terribly late, uh, and I really wasn't terribly concerned, because children are children. It's very hard to explain in today's world what it's like. But in them days, out in the country, little boys and little girls cycled everywhere. And the, the word paedophile wouldn't have even been in our vocabulary. I wouldn't have known what a paedophile was, and there wasn't the danger.
1: Not wanting to wait any longer, Pat went looking for her daughter.
7: And I sat out on, in the car and realised very quickly that Jennifer had not reached her friend's house. I tried to keep these fearful, panicky thoughts to myself, telling people, oh, it's okay. she's probably at home now. Um, Made
1: my way home, she wasn't home. Growing more worried, Andy joined the search for Jennifer along with a friend.
8: And we'd found somebody who had seen her go past, and then we found another guy who'd seen her go past, and then she missed, she just totally disappeared into thin air.
1: By 9 p.m., There was no sign of Jennifer anywhere, and the Cardies called the police.
8: The police were very quick uh, to put into action. Uh, Quite a lot of search parties. The army was there, the police was there, the the, uh, reserves were there.
1: Just before midnight, two local men spotted Jennifer's bike lying in a field, a mile away from her home. It had been thrown over a hedge.
8: Well, when we realized that Uh, Jennifer was most definitely missing, uh, particularly after we found
4: our bike. And then we knew we had a problem. The stand was in the down position, which indicated that she may well have stopped, stood it up to talk to someone. That someone was Robert Black, who almost certainly used a not dissimilar strategy to attract her attention. Oh, I've got a kitten, or would you like to see my puppy?
1: Black was long gone. He'd quickly left the area after snatching Jennifer off the side of the road. Still unaware of Jennifer's fate, more than 200 locals joined the search to find the missing nine-year-old. Everyone who lived in
7: Ballandary was out on those search parties. Everyone who lived within five miles of Ballandary were out on those search parties. No one will ever appreciate How much Andrew and myself
1: and the children appreciated that. But as the days passed, the chance of finding Jennifer became less and less likely.
8: Very hard to explain what it feels like uh, to have a child missing it. It was very hard to walk into a room and uh, everything you trip over just reminds you of that child. Uh, Wendy House and uh, uh, little things sitting on her dressing table.
1: On August 18th, six days after Jennifer had gone missing, her parents received the phone call they had been dreading.
8: Liaison officer, lovely girl, still very friendly with her to this day, called and told us that they'd found Jennifer's body. The strange thing about that was that there was a certain amount of relief in that. Because you'd been looking and wondering for six days, you know, at least we had found... Jennifer.
1: Jennifer's body was found in McKee's Dam by two duck hunters, about 10 miles away from where she was abducted. Robert Black had sexually assaulted and strangled her before placing her body into the dam.
8: When I was told that I'd have to go and identify her body, it was an excitement that I was going to see my daughter again. I'll never forget the awfulness of that. When I (laughs) went in, uh, the ASO officer was with me, and I remember so well that she had to hold me up, uh, because I would have fainted.
7: We got the body of our child back, and she was given a beautiful burial
1: and funeral. Pat and Andy Carty would wait over 30 years before justice was finally served for Jennifer. For now, Robert Black got away with murder, and it wouldn't be long before he struck again. In August, 1981, after murdering nine-year-old Jennifer Cardy, Robert Black left Ireland and returned to work. Journalist Jeffrey Wansel says Black faded into the background of society.
4: Black continued to present to the world the same affable, big, softy exterior that he'd done throughout. Drove back, went about his business. It wasn't for another year, almost, until he struck again.
1: But former Deputy Chief Constable Tom Wood says that despite the year-long hiatus, Black was always on the hunt.
2: While he was driving his van, he was always on the lookout. Uh, for his next victim. And he had in the back of his van, what can only be described as an abduction kit. He had bindings, he had um, this sack which he would put the child in. On July 30th,
1: 1982, Black was on a delivery job in Northumberland, Northeast England. 11 year old Susan Maxwell had left her house to play with her friends. Journalist Tim Tate remembers the details from that fateful day.
3: She lives with her mum and her stepdad and their children in a little village. It's a happy, warm, loving home. It's a summer. It's afternoon. Susan says she wants to go and play tennis with her friend. And it's agreed
4: that Susan will walk home. The tragic, tragic irony is that she encounters none other than Robert Black and his van.
3: She had begun walking home, and at some point after 4.30, which is the last time anyone saw her, she was snatched, literally snatched, put in the black of Black's van and driven away.
1: Susan's mother had changed her mind about letting her daughter walk home and decided to pick her up, but there was no sign of her anywhere. Fearing the worst, she called the police. Tom Wood was the detective inspector at the Lothian and Borders Serious Crime Squad.
2: We were sent down to the Borders straight away to help with the investigation. And there were huge searches made uh, off the area because we thought that um, she might have been thrown over the bridge or fallen over the bridge or or might have come to harm locally.
1: On August 12th, Susan's body was found in a lay-by covered by undergrowth near a village in the West Midlands. This was over 200 miles from where she had been abducted. It was the middle of the summer,
2: and so the body was badly decomposed to the extent it was some time before we discovered that it was actually Susan.
3: That made it impossible for the coroner to determine an exact cause of death.
1: Susan was found partially clothed, and it was apparent that she had been sexually assaulted. Investigators were desperate to find the person responsible for this heinous act.
2: Most people are murdered by someone close to them. So we had to be very, very careful that we didn't go off on flights of fancy and that we did our homework first. Who was with her? When was she last seen? We then looked at local offenders. Were there any young men around who were committing sexual offenses? And then we started on the big investigations looking for vehicles that were seen in the vicinity. And we got absolutely nowhere with it whatsoever.
1: Criminal psychologist Rex Bieber explains how Black was able to abduct his victims without drawing attention to himself. Well,
6: Black avoided capture simply by taking the one precaution before he kidnapped a child of, of looking around to see if there was anyone who would observe him. That's all he had to do. He had no relationships to the victim. He was willing to move bodies hundreds of miles in order to avoid capture.
1: Once again, Black evaded the police, and he was ready to strike again, this time abducting his youngest victim. On July 8th, 1983, in the seaside town of Portobello, just outside Edinburgh, five-year-old Caroline Hogg was at home with her family.
3: It's a summer's evening. She asks if she can go and play on the swings outside in the little park nearby, and they say yes.
1: As she walked to the playground, she was spotted by Robert Black. He had been on a delivery job in the area.
2: Robert Black would see a target of opportunity, always an attractively dressed young girl. And that was the thing that was the same about Susan and Caroline.
3: Again, it's impossible to overstate how quickly Black Operated. He snatched her, and it would have taken no more than seconds. Drove her away.
1: Fifteen minutes after she left the house, Caroline's brother went to check on her. But there was no sign of her at the playground. Around 8pm, her parents called the police. Tom Wood was again part of the team investigating the disappearance of the young girl. We started looking for her.
2: A lot of people had seen her, or thought they had seen her in the area of Portobello Promenade. On that summer's day, there were thousands of people on that promenade and the case struck a chord because Caroline was such a pretty wee girl and numerous people turned out to help with searches and to to try to support the police in the investigations.
1: Police urged the press to release information about Caroline's disappearance. As a result, The search for the five-year-old became one of the biggest search parties in Scotland, with nearly 2,000 people looking for her. But on July 18th, ten days after she went missing, everyone's worst fears were confirmed.
4: Poor Caroline's body is found in a lay-by yet again, this time in Twycross in Leicestershire, 300 miles from where she disappeared.
5: This was a murder that also happened in the summer months. And when her body was found, it was, again, quite badly decomposed. So this was another young life taken by this predator.
4: This time, there's not much doubt that she's been assaulted. This poor, innocent five-year-old has been abused by a man who shows no compassion, no conscience, no remorse but it's almost certain that Black
3: did what he always did. He never saw himself as killing. He saw himself as allowing the child to die and that allowed him in his mind to carry out the awful, horrible, painful abuse on the child's body, which was his pattern.
1: During their investigation, police found connections to another of Black's victims, Susan Maxwell. That investigation was still open, and the two cases were strikingly similar.
2: We linked the two crimes straight away. They'd been abducted in almost the same circumstances, dragged off the street. They'd been transported several hundred miles. They had been deposited, not in the same location, but in very similar locations.
1: Based on those similarities, a joint enquiry was formed between four police forces. But without any leads, they were no closer to catching their killer. For a while, Black laid low. But less than three years later, Black was back.
3: Black was extraordinarily careful. This wasn't an out-of-control, spur-of-the-moment decision to abduct a child. He planned this. He spent hours, days looking for suitable victims.
6: Black's modus Operandi was fairly simple, similar to almost every pedophile that I've examined. He would drive around, he would look for a child. The child had to have two sets of characteristics that was physical, that had to do with his fixation. that second criteria was that no adults had to be near that child or nearby responsible for taking care of that child. He would
3: rehearse. He would drive round and round. Even if he saw a child who he thought matched his image of an ideal victim, he wouldn't abduct straight away. He would monitor. He would look for escape routes. And only when everything was perfect would he pounce.
1: On Wednesday, March 26, 1986, Black was on a delivery job in the town of Leeds. Meanwhile, 10-year-old Sarah Harper had just stepped out of her family home to run an errand for her mom.
3: Sarah lives with her mom, Jackie, in Morley, Leeds. It's a safe, northern terraced street community. After Coronation Street is over, so 8 o'clock, Jackie says to Sarah, would you just nip to the corner shop and get us some bread? Black has been in the area, he's been delivering posters, and he's spent time, as was his MO, quartering those streets. At some point, just at the point where Sarah is walking from the corner shop, Black sees her. And once again, within seconds, he grabs her, bundles her into the back of the van and drives off. And Sarah is never seen again.
4: Yet again, she's disappeared. A young girl has disappeared into thin air.
1: When Sarah didn't return, her family grew uneasy and went to look for her. But Sarah was nowhere to be found. Soon after, her parents called the police. The search for Sarah lasted around three weeks. Then, on April 19th, her body was found by a dog walker. Black had left her near the River Trent in Nottingham.
3: Her body is found several miles away in this rough geographical area that police came to call the triangle in the midlands the same rough geographical area that susan maxwell's body and caroline's Hawk's body were
1: found after an examination of her body it was discovered that sarah had been sexually assaulted
5: for Robert Black, these girls were essentially disposable objects. He would abduct them in these blitz attacks off the streets. He'd abuse them, and then he would just discard them. He, he really was the, the most remorseless offender.
1: Sarah Harper was Robert Black's fourth victim in just over four years. And he showed no signs of stopping. In the summer of 1990, police had connected the murder of three young girls. Despite the investigation, police were no closer to catching the killer. But Robert Black was bound to eventually slip up, and a chance encounter was about to provide the police with the break they needed. Journalist Jeffrey Wonsel and Detective Inspector Tom Wood describe that day.
4: In July 1990, Black is still driving his van, and this time he returns to the borders of Scotland, a little town called Stowe. A retired post office worker is mowing his lawn when he sees a van pull up. He also sees a young girl walk past the van,
2: and then he sees the young girl lifted up and whisked into the van. With great presence of mind, this this, uh, guy noted the number of this van, Uh, accurately, and immediately phoned the police. The police attended, and as they were standing, uh, discussing the issue on this little road in Stout.
4: Black drives back down the
2: same road,
4: where the same post office worker shouts, that's the van, and it is the same van, and it is Black driving it.
2: The policeman stepped out, stopped the van, then detained the driver. Um, and then searched the van, first found nothing, and then found the wee girl lying in the bottom of the van uh, in a bag, semi-suffocated. And the man who
4: opens the back doors of the van is the little girl's father, who's a policeman. Can you imagine what impact that must have had on him? There can be no doubt that it was Black's overconfidence, his arrogance, to do something so outrageous in broad daylight in a tiny Scottish town, and what's more then to drive back down the same road in which he's abducted.
1: Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and criminal psychologist Rex Bieber weigh in. And thankfully, the little girl is still alive. She's been sexually assaulted, but she's escaped
5: with her life.
6: It's important to understand that a serial killer of the kind that Black was, he he was an obsessed serial killer, not an incidental serial killer he he was destined to kill over and over and over again had he not have been caught that day that girl would have died and many others would have died now immediately robert black was arrested for that um
2: literally within the hour we knew this was the man we were looking for because the the the, the modus operandi was was so was so identical
1: on august 10th 1990 Robert Black pleaded guilty to the abduction and sexual abuse of the six-year-old girl in Stowe. He was given a life sentence and was sent to Soughton Prison in Edinburgh. Black initially wanted to appeal his sentence. However, his lawyers decided he should be psychologically examined before taking action. Journalist Tim Tate said the examination didn't do Black any favors.
3: And they asked Ray Wire, who was then the country's leading expert at dealing with men who sexually abuse children. Ray went to visit Black in prison and over two days assessed him and wrote a report for the solicitors. And that report said, the sentence is absolutely right. Black is a very, very, very dangerous individual. And Black drops the appeal. Black then gets in touch with Ray and says, would you come and see me again? I want to try and understand why I do this. And Ray agreed.
1: Police were certain Black was responsible for additional abductions and murders of other young children. But they had little evidence to prove it.
2: We tied them to the location of Sarah Harper's abduction, Um, the location of Susan Mackle's abduction, and Portobello for Caroline Hogg. Now, that's not a lot of Evidence is still very
1: circumstantial. Without any proof, police needed Black to confess to his crimes.
2: Now, Black, resistant to interview, wouldn't say anything, would would speak away about everything until you came to the business of abductions and then just closed down. Wouldn't say a word.
1: But then, there was a surprising breakthrough in the investigation.
2: The company he worked with were a very old-fashioned company, and they kept years and years and years of petrol receipts for all their vehicles. So after a long investigation, we could actually determine exactly where Black was at certain times because of the petrol receipts of his van. By May
1: 1991, investigators had built a case to charge Black with the murders of Sarah Harper, Caroline Hogg, and Susan Maxwell.
3: The police and prosecutors had two things on their side. The first was they had petrol receipts, credit card receipts for Black filling up his van, which put him in the area for each of those cases at the time. That on its own probably wouldn't have been enough. What they were able to use was a provision of English law which says in really serious cases, you can introduce evidence of system. They were able to show that what happened to Susan Maxwell, Caroline Hogg, and Sarah Harper matched almost exactly the abduction in Stow in the Scottish borders.
1: Two years after his arrest in May 1994, Robert Black was convicted of the murders of Susan Maxwell, Caroline Hogg, and Sarah Harper. He was given 10 life sentences and was also charged with the failed abduction of a 15 year old girl in 1988. His first victim, nine-year-old Jennifer Cardy in Northern Ireland, was not initially linked to the other killings. However, her parents, Andy and Pat Cardy, say they were convinced Black was responsible.
8: We knew very shortly after Robert Black was caught, we knew Robert Black had murdered Jennifer. We knew he was in the province on the day that Jennifer went missing. And we knew it was a waiting game
1: but it would take until 2009 for Black to be charged with the murder of Jennifer. The trial took place two years later at the Armacrown Court, Northern Ireland, on September 22nd,
8: 2011. We, I particularly worried about seeing him for the first time. Seeing the man who was the last person that my daughter seen. I was amazed how old he was. He just looked like an old man. An old man who... Uh, really had given himself over to depravity.
7: He looked ordinary, but he shouldn't have looked ordinary. I could have touched the hair that curled at the back of his neck, only he was beyond a perspex glass, but I could have touched him, and now he was real. And Andrea and I both knew the trauma of the impact of seeing this man's face,
1: the man who killed her. During the trial, the Cardies were forced to hear the painful details about what had happened to their nine-year-old daughter. Not only to her, but to every little child he got his hands on. And it
7: was more and more traumatic, cruel, depraved. There was nothing in this man that he could ever have said I didn't mean to do it because he got more aggravated in his depravity.
1: And we had to listen to this, and we made ourselves listen to it, but there was a small piece of information that gave the Cardi some peace. Based on Black's testimony, they were certain Jennifer had fought back against her killer. I don't allow myself to think
7: what. That innocent, beautiful little girl had to go through. But I'll tell you this, she gave up one big fight because Robert Black, after that, took shoes off all, each of his victims' feet after he had killed her. And I know she gave him a hard time. Her wee legs had more fire and strength in them
1: on October 27th, 2011, Black was found guilty of murdering Jennifer Cardi and was sentenced to an additional 25 years.
7: Well,
8: my feelings to Robert Black was that certainly I pitied the man, pity anybody who has an addiction like he had, pity any man who has allowed himself to go down that road.
1: Police were still determined to find out if Black was responsible for the abductions of other missing girls. Eventually, they had enough evidence to bring him to trial for the disappearance of 13-year-old Jeanette Tate in Devon in 1978. However, on January 12, 2016, Robert Black died in Mugabry Prison. He was 68 years old.
7: I was gutted. I remember the phone call that came that day. Part of me wasn't sorry, and yet part of me was big-time sorry, because I did want to talk to that man.
4: These young, innocent children had their whole lives in front of them, and those lives were stolen by Robert Black.
5: I think we're particularly disgusted about crimes against children because children are the most innocent of victims. They are the the most vulnerable people in society, the people who are in need of our protection. So when they become the victims of crime, um, we, we feel particularly affected by that.
7: I always feel that what Robert Black did to Jennifer, he did to each and every one of us. He murdered us. He took our lives. But no one knows that unless they have to come through it. Um, We had uh, an able God. We have a great faith, but it's not the faith. It's the God that He is who helped us through. And we saw all our family being strengthened and given back a new life.
1: What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Booms Lauren Bogle, Blair Payton, Pam Burroughs, Karen Bevan, Alexandra Jueno, and Neil Fern. Production for Woodcut provided by Andy Papadopoulos, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kredji. Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beal. And for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the families and friends of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer. In May 1983, a mother of three arrived at a hospital in Springfield, Oregon. She and her children had been shot by an unknown man on the side of the road. Or at least, that was what she said. When the person asked her the question, who shot you and your siblings, she says, my mom did it. Investigators would soon uncover the truth. The children weren't victims of a gun-wielding stranger but of their very own mother.
6: She violated that sacred duty and attempted in cold blood to kill all three of her children.